at times rescued the Israelites from their circumstances. None of them were able to rescue the Israelites from themselves. They continued to fail God's covenant. And many of the leaders failed themselves, only adding to Israel's failure. The prophets told Israel about a Messiah, though, that was coming. Messiah means anointed one, and he would be the perfect version of all of these leaders. He would be a king who would reign forever. He would rescue them like the judges from slavery once and for all. He would be a perfect high priest who would care for their needs and uh, address their sin. He would provide for them a final atoning sacrifice so that they would no longer have to make any more sacrifices. This Messiah would fulfill the covenant himself and make them a new covenant. After 400 years of silence, we finally meet this Messiah. His name was Jesus, which means the Lord is salvation. Jesus was born uniquely, both a descendant of King David and born from the Holy Spirit. Jesus grew up and always did what was good and right and perfect. He was baptized, and at his baptism, a voice from heaven came and declared Jesus to be the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah. Jesus was then tempted by Satan, just like Adam and Eve had been, but he resisted. Even in the worst of circumstances, in the wilderness, his love and devotion to God never faltered. He always believed God, he always trusted God, and always obeyed God. Many people adored Jesus, but not the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a group who believed that the Messiah would only come if they followed God's laws perfectly. And even though Jesus was doing lots of good things, they believed he was trampling on God's law in the process. Not only that, Jesus was a heretic. He claimed he could forgive sins and that he was God's unique son, a God alongside God. And the Pharisees couldn't stand it. We've listened to quite a few fights between Jesus and the Pharisees, and today we'll learn about their final clash. Act 4, Scene 1, One Final Meal. Jesus and his disciples traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Everywhere he went, he had compassion on people and met their needs. The Pharisees and other Jewish leaders were becoming increasingly upset with Jesus and his claims. He continued to tell people he could forgive them. This enraged the Jewish leaders. They saw this as the ultimate disrespect to God. They looked for ways to trap Jesus into saying something they could arrest him for, but Jesus was too smart for them. He constantly outwitted them and evaded their uh, accusations. Many of his stories also pointed out the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders. Jesus said, In public, when the Pharisees and teachers share with you God's commands, listen to them, but don't follow their example. They don't live out what they teach. The high priest, the leader of the Pharisees, met with these leaders to discuss capturing Jesus and putting him to death. We can't arrest him during the Passover, they they agreed, or it will create a huge riot. Jesus and his 12 disciples met together in a home to celebrate the Passover. During the meal, Jesus picked up some bread, thanked God for it, and broke it into pieces. Giving it to his disciples, he said, Take this and eat it. This is my body given for you. And then Jesus picked up a cup of wine and thanked God for it. He gave them the cup and said, All of you drink this. It is my blood given for you. A new covenant between God and people. It is poured out to forgive the sins of many. Remember me when you continue to eat and drink these things together. Jesus told them, when you see what happens tonight, you will all abandon me. 
It is part of God's plan that I will be betrayed and die, but don't fear, I will rise again from the dead. He knew that his disciple Judas would betray him, bringing Jewish soldiers to capture him later that night when no one was around. After the meal, when it was dark, Jesus went to pray, and filled with pain and sorrow, he pleaded with God, Father, if there is another way besides my death, please let that happen, but I will do whatever you ask. Act 4, Scene 2, Death and Resurrection. Just as he had finished praying, Judas showed up with an armed mob. He greeted Jesus with a kiss, a sign to show the guards which one they should arrest. Jesus said to them, Am I a dangerous criminal that you need weapons to capture me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple where I've been teaching every day? No, this is part of God's plans, just as the prophets predicted long ago. When the guards arrested Jesus and dragged him away, the disciples ran away and hid. The guards beat Jesus and brought him before the Jewish leaders for questioning. They asked, are you the Messiah, the son of God? And Jesus answered, I am. And you will see me seated next to God in power, coming back on the clouds of heaven. These were the symbols of his authority and power. And when Jesus said this, the high priest tore his clothing in horror and said, any man who claims to be God must be put to death. Then they struck Jesus on the face and spit on him. Jesus was brought to the Roman governor Pilate, since Jews could not execute anyone without official permission. And the Jewish leaders stirred up the crowds and pressured Pilate to have Jesus put to death. And the crowd shouted, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate agreed. Pilate feared a riot would break out, so he handed Jesus over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. Jesus was brutally beaten and whipped by the soldiers. They put a crown of sharp thorns on his head and a purple robe around his shoulders. Hail the king of the Jews, they laughed. All night, the Roman soldiers continued to beat Jesus and mock him. When morning came, they led Jesus to a place called Skull Hill. Like a criminal, Jesus was nailed to a heavy wooden cross between two thieves. Crucifixion was the most cruel and humiliating way to die. Hanging there, though, he cried out, Father, please forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. At noon, darkness filled the skies, blocking out the sun for three hours. Suddenly, the thick curtain hanging in the temple tore down the middle, and at that moment, Jesus shouted, Father, I give you my life. It is finished. Then Jesus breathed his last breath and died. The soldiers broke the legs of the criminals crucified next to Jesus to speed up their death so that they would suffocate. But when they found that Jesus was already dead, they didn't break his legs. To be sure, one of the soldiers, though, stabbed him in the side with a spear. Blood and water poured out, a phenomenon that only happens after death. Late Friday afternoon, Jesus' body was taken down from the cross, wrapped in long strips of cloth, and buried in a rich man's tomb. A large stone was rolled over the entrance to the tomb, and Roman guards were posted to make sure nothing happened to his body. And there Jesus' body lay, dead and lifeless. After Saturday, early on Sunday morning, some of the women who followed Jesus went to prepare his body for burial, to honor him and his death. When they arrived at the tomb, they saw, though, the stone rolled away, and the soldiers were gone. And suddenly, two angels appeared. They said, Why are you surprised? You are looking for Jesus, but he is not here. He has been raised from the dead. 
The women were excited, but afraid and hurried to tell the disciples the amazing news. And some of the disciples ran back to the tomb and looked inside for themselves. And truly, Jesus was not there. Later, Jesus appeared to his disciples many times over the next 40 days. They touched him. They saw him eat food and perform miracles again. Jesus reminded them of his teaching about the kingdom. He opened their minds to understand how the whole story of the world had led up to him. And over 500 people saw Jesus alive. This is the, obviously the climax of the story. Um, in the story, when you think about Jesus' trials, he was really condemned to die by three groups, by the religious leaders, by the political leaders, the Romans, and the crowd. What do you think is significant about that triple conviction? I think if it um, had just been the, you know, religious leaders that, like, we maybe couldn't identify with, you know, our culpability um, in his death. Yeah, it sort of gives us as readers, like, less wiggle room um, to where... In this case, like Jesus was condemned to die by three different, very, or very different groups of people, um, and yeah, I think that's right. Where maybe we wouldn't identify with the religious leaders, but we would were convicted by the political leaders or by the crowd. Um, is that pretty like like how do you how do you think about that? putting yourself back in the story, realizing that you would almost certainly be one that would convict Jesus and ask for his death. It feels like it underscores how truly alone Jesus must have felt mm-hmm. in that moment. This is like such a wide cross-section. And so it's safe to assume that Pretty much everyone was against him at that point, uh, with the exception of a few folks that wouldn't um, necessarily make their themselves known. Um, and so, I can't imagine the the, the feeling of just um, abandonment and like solitude that he must have felt. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, even his disciples hid and ran away um the most i mean the most faithful group of people were were his uh the followers who are women you know there are a few women at his cross and and john those are the only people um yeah what go ahead i think it's significant too because just like a week ago at palm sunday when he was riding in they were still expecting him to be a political king. Mm-hmm. And he had, they were finally getting that he had no intention of that. Mm-hmm. And so, like, they were yelling Hosanna a week ago, and now they're yelling crucify yeah. a week later. And I think that it's significant because it's, it's just like a tsunami that this is going to happen. There's no one advocating that he, he's not going to get away. Yeah. I think from these three different groups. 
uniting. Yeah. Yeah, and it's but then it, you know at the same time it sort of feels like something that he orchestrated. You know, like he goes in and there's the crowds in support of him, and he goes in the temple and turns over. Like he he sort of instigated. Like you can feel the heat turning up out by Jesus doing so um, in the things that he said against the Pharisees and the way he refused to defend himself in front of Pilate. Um, why did, why does Jesus do that? Why, why does he orchestrate this event, submit to their killing? Why does God the Father allow it? Um, I feel like the Lord's Supper helps explain his reasoning. What was Jesus's reasoning? I guess he, he prayed to God that if there was another way, mm-hmm. then that, that he be, but if it was his father's will, then, then he accepted it. So I guess that, you know, that means that it was his, his father's will. Yeah. Yeah, he fully believed that God could, that God the Father could stop it. Um, and and was, would be, uh, would have been happy for that. Why does God the Father not stop it? What does the Lord's Supper communicate about the significance as he breaks the bread and passes the wine what does he say about his death it's given for other for for us Mm -hmm. yeah it's given for us that it's for the forgiveness of sins um and that it's to start a new covenant it's sort of like close the old sort of to pay the debt of the old covenant off to sort of close that deal and start a new a new covenant a new relationship um between god and man and it seems like the significance of like everything with the last supper and um why god allows all this is like it's the only option Hmm. um to save humanity and um and like Jesus is taking the place of um, the animal sacrifices um, and is like the forever um, replacement for that um, and takes away from that practice of needing to sacrifice um, a pure animal for um, to replace or um, to uh, forgive those sins. It's he's taking that on forever in this one um, uh, with his death and then uh, with communion carrying on that we remember that and kind of engage in that practice over and over again it's kind of like a transition of what was happening before and Mm. what will continue on yeah and I mean that's sort of the significance of it being on Passover you know it being a Passover meal because that was like Passover Sunday was the the representative of the lamb dying and the blood being on the door so that the so that the angel of death passes over and and a family remains unaffected by by it and so Jesus is that like pure Passover lamb um in the middle of it though if we sort of think about the experience of the characters on Friday um, so just sort of want you to imagine like what, what were the, dis- where were the disciples? What, how were they feeling 
when Jesus was crucified? How were the Pharisees feeling? Um, how is Pilate feeling on Friday? And then how does that change come Sunday um, when the disciples obviously meet Jesus, um, realize he's raised from the dead? And even the Pharisees, like what are they thinking when the guards come and say that the tomb is empty? Um, it's anything, I mean, that's a big monster question, but is there anything that's striking to you about the story if you're putting yourself in in it? How do you feel about the transition? Hey, Dave, I got like kind of a sidetrack question, so sorry if it kind of no, go for diverts it. off this question, but so how should we be reading like when Jesus is asking the Father, like if there is like another way, like let it be, when yet like, I was kind of thinking of how, like, I don't, I don't know what the right phrase for it is, but, like, the scripture has been written, like, for hundreds of years, like, mm-hmm. leading up to this. It seems like a, like, I don't know if, like, a no-brainer is the right word for it, but, like, if, if all these prophets have foretold of, like, the way that Jesus needed to be a sacrifice, that this needed to unfold in order to, like fulfill this why would jesus ask the father to like i don't know change the plan like does that make any sense what i'm asking does that seem seem like a dumb question like i'm just thinking about like yeah yeah and i mean you had jesus had been foretelling his death so you know, in Matthew and Luke, there are three times each gospel has three times him saying that the son of man must die and be raised on the third day. So he's been saying it very confidently. What do you feel like is, what, what do you feel like is different about this moment when you like think about that scene? What's different about Jesus in that moment? I think it speaks to his humanity, like that he's, he's fully God, but he's, fully man and in that moment like there's like terror and dread and Mm -hmm. sorrow um and like a a real posture as a son like pleading with a father Mm -hmm. like is there any other way um but i don't know that's just yeah and and great great comment maggie like i was thinking about tag teaming off that and sorry again for sidetracking absolutely but i was just thinking about like the fact that if if christ is perfect and yet in this moment, maybe we are saying that, like, his humanity of maybe a glimpse of doubt, like, does that mean that doubt is not sinful? And, like, does, mm-hmm. that, does that give us that reassurance of, like, even though Jesus doubted and he was perfect, like, that, I don't know if excuses doubt or like that. Um, I don't know. Right, yeah, no, that. I think, I mean, I, I think um, faithfulness perfection i mean you know hebrews says that jesus learned perfection through suffering he was made perfect through suffering um and so perfection is is a a a idea of being complete and we often think of it as like pristine and that's really not a biblical conception and so from an early age, um, Jesus is realizing, you know, like you're saying, he's realizing what the prophets are teaching. He's realizing the what that means for him and his role. And then this is sort of the final, you know, like Maggie's saying, this emotional moment where there is a question just like, 
you know, you could say like he's maybe he's asking, is there another way? But it's it's actually more like if there's another way, please let it happen. Like, could could it be? I would love it if there was another way. <laughs> you know, I would be, you know, and that's sort of a different perspective of like, I'm going to do whatever you tell me to do. And I love you and I love these people. Um, if there was another way, I would do it. And that sort of emphasis, there is no other way. You know what Carly was saying, there's no other way. And so you really get to see the like definitive nature of that. You get to see the emotion of Jesus and how really terrible it was. Um, that this had, this apparently has more to do. It's more than just a, a death. Um, yeah, it's really, really, really uh, shocking. Yeah, thanks for that. That's like a, I, I'm happy for diversions. So that's a really good and important thought. As we like think about the resurrection, um, the Apostle Paul said, if, if Christ is not raised from the dead, we are of all men most to be pitied. Uh, so that if the resurrection was not true, uh, then people should pity us. Do you feel that way? Uh, Or do you feel like if it was just the cross and the resurrection didn't really happen, it's not as important? Our time is is almost up. so So I would maybe just have you sit on that as a rhetorical question. Like, do I agree with the Apostle Paul? Like, should other people pity my faith if the resurrection is not true? Is my life shaped in such a way that it has to be true? Act 5, scene 1. Judge, priest, king, and prophet. Jesus' new kingdom had come. He had conquered sin and death once and for all by dying on the cross and coming back to life. He spent time with his disciples and revealed all of the mysteries and truths behind the stories he told and the miracles he had performed before his death. And he went back through the Old Testament, showing them that everything that had happened with the people of Israel all pointed to him. The covenant with Abraham, the sacrifice made for sins, the time of the judges, the priests, the kings, and the prophets. This was all about him leading to him. He had fulfilled all these promises. He made up for everything they lacked. He showed them that he was the true and best judge, the true and best deliverer, because he perfectly did what humans do not do, which is to obey and submit to God. And he now sits as the righteous judge, but he's a gentle, loving, and forgiving judge, accepting all of the guilty people who come to him asking for forgiveness because he took their punishment. He taught them that he was the true and best priest, Like their priests, Jesus offered a sacrifice to satisfy the law of God when he offered himself for their sins. But unlike human priests who had to continually offer sacrifices not just for the people but for themselves, Jesus only had to offer his sacrifice once, gaining eternal forgiveness for all who come to God through him. Jesus is also a priest that people can come directly to. There is no longer a need for another mediator between humans and God. Jesus is that mediator because he is both human and God. Jesus was also the perfect king, the only king that always did what was good and right and perfect. He told his disciples to call him Lord and that he has dominion over angels, demons, humanity, the earth, righteousness, salvation, sin, and death. Nothing is outside of Christ's rule. To live in his kingdom and under his authority meant having the best, most protected life possible. 
he taught them that he is the perfect prophet, the very voice of God, the very word of God. He told them that his words to them were the same as God speaking directly to them and that everything they needed to know about God, he had taught them. The disciples could not believe all that they were seeing and hearing. They were amazed by what Jesus had accomplished and were filled with joy. Well, um, so that was short. Um, according to the story, though, Jesus explained to his disciples he perfect, that he perfectly fills the Old Testament roles of judge, king, priest, and prophet. How does he meet the needs of Israel by filling these roles? How does he meet the needs of the world? And how does he meet your needs? And so sort of the three-part question is like, man, how is Jesus the answer for all, the, all that was missing in the Old Testament? How is he the answer for all that's missing in the world? And then how do you personally resonate with these roles? You can answer any one of those questions. Um, I see that like in each of these roles, um, these are, these were roles of like humans helping us to try to hold on to relationship with God, try to like be in close relationship with God. And so I think Jesus being God and fulfilling these um, is like that, that connection for us that like we, um, we have a restored relationship with God again. Yeah. That's great. Do you feel like, or does this can go to anyone, um, when you think about having a relationship with God, do, do these, what do you think about these roles? Is that the kind of relationship with God that you're looking for? A, a judge, deliverer, king, priest, and prophet. How does it help you capture what kind of relationship you need, you need with God? I mean, I think that it, um, you know, without the Bible sort of like explaining these roles that um, it doesn't necessarily feel like what I need, but it is what I need. You know, I think, I think that's some, like part of what is hard about, you know, sharing the gospel with unbelievers is that people don't see their need. They don't want a judge or a king. They maybe, maybe want a priest, but in their own fashioning um and so yeah i think it's easy now like having been a christian for a while like to see that i need all of these roles um but it's not necessarily um easy to see that or yeah that's good and there are other you know roles that feel like these these are in line with the story, but then we, you know, you have a father-son role, you know, you have uh, the husband and bride role. Like, there are, like, other relationships that maybe we do tend to, like, favor, you know? Wanting God as our father, wanting Christ as our groom, um, our perfect groom. Um, but these are also super important. Um, I think it's interesting, like coming off like such, like so much political turmoil, 
you know, where it's just like in your face, like the failures of leaders, <laughs> like where you just like, there's just like so much like failure of human leadership, of fallen leadership. It can go so badly, both like when you have like nefarious, like sinful people. And then you, you just have like weak people who just like, they just kind of, we're kind of just bumbling, you know? Um, and so for, you just want a perfect leader and I want a perfect judge, a perfect king, a perfect priest, a perfect prophet. Like, just like get all the other pretenders out of the way. Like, I just want the perfect one. Um, and can feel that that is connected though to like Jesus connects it to his title as Lord. And so how do, how does Lord, um, connect with judge, king, priest, and prophet? How does that change the feel of Jesus's ministry, his role, when we address him as Lord? I think, um, I think it's so much Lord makes it initially, I have to kind of like talk myself into it. Like initially Lord makes the whole thing a little bit less palatable. Um, because I think I, I have kind of a tendency to think, and I think it's like this, this thought is very prominent in culture. And so it's like easily reinforced, but I'll speak for myself and say that like I tend to think that the 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 really the best way for me to know that my needs are gonna be met or the best way to know that I'm gonna be fairly represented in a in a conversation, or the best way for me to know that um, I'm not gonna be taken advantage of is for me to represent myself. Mm. It takes like immense like trust to be able to have somebody else like represent you or like judge in your like judge in your best interest or you know um like make a a, a ruling on like right and wrong and that like it, that you know considers your best interest and so I think this idea of like lord you know, um says that like I want justice but I'm going to trust you to figure out what justice is and and work it out it says like I want like provision and peace, but I'm going to trust you to figure out what provision and peace is. And I think that um, I have a hard time with that. And then I think within a lot of like our social and political conversations right now, there's like a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of talk about like people should speak for themselves, nobody else should speak for you, which you know is is a good principle within within humans. But when we when we extrapolate it out to God, it it doesn't, you know, it doesn't work because God actually knows more than us, right? Like, like it's good for me to not speak for you and you do not speak for me sometimes because we're both humans, but God is not a human. He knows more than we do. And so I think I, you know, I have to go through that whole process and remember like, oh, I can trust God to like decide what is just on my behalf or on behalf of somebody else because God actually does know more than humans do. Um, but my knee-jerk reaction is like, no, I don't want you to be Lord. I want us each to speak for ourselves. And then I want us each to come to consensus among ourselves. And I don't want anyone to have any hierarchy over anyone else. Mm. Um, and that's how we'll all be safe. And that's how we're all, we'll all be respected. Mm. Um, and so this Lord, this hierarchy is like, it, like I kind of have like a knee-jerk reaction against it. And then I kind of gotta like, talk myself back into it. Like remembering that, like just fundamentally like Jesus is not the same as us. And so 
It's not the same as human dynamics. Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like, for me, the title Lord, what sort of I can... Um, I wonder about is sort of the like man just the uh, amazing story about he died and he rose again and then he offers forgiveness and then but then to make the jump from that thank you so much and now I'm forever yours (laughs) like that sort of like that is like the like oh wait a minute like I just want to be like thanks see ya you know like you know I'll like send you I'll I'll add you to my Christmas card list, you know, kind of thing. But then to like, know like this, this kind of gift, this kind of salvation, I have been like redeemed, like literally purchased, um, from one like terrible, ruthless master, um, who only wanted to hurt and destroy me. And I've been bought and now placed in a new kingdom. Like the, you know, uh, I, I'll say a bunch that like you cannot serve two masters but you must serve one you know like you got to pick one somebody to and so that I think can be really hard for me where I want Jesus to be friend or I want him to be brother or I want God to be father you know but I don't even I don't have that relationship with my father like my father I don't address my father as Lord <laughs> you know um, people used to but but I don't so that can be like a really man, this is like all of life. Like I'm a, a servant of the Lord. Um, yeah, do you think, how how would that affect your relationship with Jesus if you thought of him as Lord? Emily, I liked lots of what you were saying and it made me think of like Downton Abbey or any of those BBC programs where you have the titles still in place where people are truly under someone's authority and their decisions affect the rest of their lives. And Mm -hmm. I think that there's that submission to them that they have to practice daily in that, which we don't have to really practice that submission in our culture in the same way. We are so independent. So the fact that if the Jesus is Lord of our whole life, then we have to submit in all the areas and working that out over time in that relationship I think is the part that in the church or even out of the church is just a little repelling because Mm -hmm. uh, it goes so countercultural to especially our western brain yeah I can't it is interesting like we in my prayers, like I often like, dear Lord, you know, like I, I use the term, but all similar to Christ where it's just kind of, uh, it's like his like middle name or something, you know, like it's not, it doesn't actually have the meaning associated, which is like, you're in charge of me, <laughs> you know, to where I even like when I, uh, you know, when I'm pray even in prayer, like, dear Lord, like you're in charge. Like, can you do, I mean, what we were talking about with Jesus, like, it would be nice if you did this, but whatever you do, I trust you, you know, and I just lose the, it's like helpful for me to like revisit this and remember like, oh, I use this vocab word all the time um, when I think about Jesus, but I often don't import the meaning that he is Lord over me. 
um, which is different from King. Like, King is very much, like, he's just more distant, like, more protector, more provider. Like, the Lord is a very, like, personal, like, I'm his subject. Um, and he's in charge of everything. Any other reflections about Jesus as Lord? I have here, how does it affect your relationship to other people? Like the fact that Jesus is your Lord, how does that shape your relationship with others? I think in some ways, sometimes it is a bit of relief because it offers like a code of conduct, Mm. um, which it can go both ways. But like I, for example, wear scrubs to work and I always find that a big relief because I don't have to decide what I'm going to wear to work or really what I'm going to decide at all, like three whole days of the week. Um, Because I have this like this because of my place in in the system I have a thing that I wear um and I think in a obviously much bigger complex way I think there's a bit of similarity with that and having Jesus be my Lord where like there's many right ways there might be like many right ways or many acceptable ways or many good things to do and but because I'm to do like a task or whatever but because I'm like a subject of Jesus I have like a I don't have any so many decisions to make. Yeah. Like a little bit of relief. Yeah. Like as a kid, you know, my parents were really, we went to church like whenever it was open. And so you just knew it was like a thing where it's like, oh, I can't do that. You know, like it was like not even a thought, like it's Wednesday night, Sunday night, Sunday morning, can't do it. You know, and you're not, you're not torn. And there was a, there is a peace, peacefulness to that. All right. All right. Our, uh, last section, I think there are two scenes. Act five, scene two, the church. In the weeks that followed Jesus' death, he appeared to his disciples many times and was seen by over 500 eyewitnesses. Quickly, the news about his resurrection spread throughout the region. But one of his disciples named Thomas said, I won't believe he's alive until I can put my fingers into the holes where his hands were nailed to the cross. A few days later, Jesus appeared to his disciples and said to Thomas, put your fingers here, feel the hole in my hand. Put your hand into the wound in my side. And Thomas shouted, It is you, Jesus, my God. Then Jesus said, I will bless those even more who haven't seen but still believe. Soon after that, Jesus said to his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations all over the world. Baptize their new disciples in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey all the commands I have given you and to walk in my ways. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God's Spirit will come, just as the prophets had promised, giving you peace, leading you in truth, and empowering you for the mission I am sending you on. Wait for him. As the disciples watched, Jesus ascended into the sky, disappearing in the clouds right in front of them. A few weeks later, a group of 120 of Jesus' followers gathered to pray together in Jerusalem. All of a sudden, they had heard a loud sound, like a roaring windstorm that filled the house where they were meeting. Each of them was filled with God's Spirit and started speaking in languages that were not their own. They went out into the street and began to tell people about the great things that Jesus had done. This roaring sound was heard throughout the entire city, and a large crowd had gathered outside the house to see what was going on. And that time, at that time, Jews from all over the Roman world were living in Jerusalem. 
And when the people heard Jesus' followers speaking, they said, how can this be? They're from Galilee, but they're speaking in our own language. This is amazing. One of Jesus' disciples, named Peter, stepped forward to explain to the crowds what was happening. He said, this is part of God's prophecy being fulfilled. We are eyewitnesses of the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead and is the true Messiah. Then Peter explained how Jesus had fulfilled everything the prophets had said about the Messiah, and he told the crowd, each of you must turn from your sins and turn to God. In Jesus, you will find forgiveness. He is the final sacrifice for everyone's sin. This is God's new covenant offered to all who want to be a part of God's family. And that day, thousands believed what Peter had said and turned from their sins to follow Jesus. They were baptized and became part of God's family, once again empowered to live out God's promise to be a blessing to all people. God's new covenant was not written on tablets of stone like before, but on the hearts and minds of his people, so they would always know how to live in his ways. These followers of Jesus were deeply committed to God and each other, sharing everything they had, praying, learning God's ways together, and helping anyone in need all with great joy and generosity. Daily, they ate together to honor and remember Jesus' life given for them. The world was not yet perfect, but in everything they experienced, they were being made perfect and being drawn closer to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They saw God do amazing things through them, miracles and healings as he added people to their group each day. This was the beginning of what the Bible called the church, a diverse community of people all over the world who, because of Jesus, once again enjoy a life that is full and complete, a life lived close to God, the life humans were always meant to live. How did Jesus respond to Thomas's doubt, and do you think that Thomas ever doubted again? Um, Jesus, um... Uh, helped Thomas with his doubt and said, here you go, this is what you need. Here it is. Yeah. And so that believed that it was him. Yeah, is that encouraging to you? Yeah, that, yeah, that is encouraging to me. Um, and also I think that um, Thomas probably continued to doubt. <laughs> yeah. Based off of my own experience, a lot of times I, where I feel really, uh, like I feel like I've learned something or some new, you know, wonderful experience but then you know time passes and 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 doubts come in again yeah yeah i agree god and that's i'm just guessing based off my experience yeah i agree that's like the second this is the first year that it's ever occurred to me to ask like did he ever doubt again and just the my assumption too is that surely did maybe he didn't doubt the resurrection because he like stuck his finger like in in jesus side so but then i'm sure there are so many other things to doubt like there you can doubt god's goodness his like fairness like his presence like all kinds of things that i'm sure he continued to doubt um yeah, bef- yeah, I think it's like Go ahead. I'm just gonna say I think it's it's like tempting to think, well, no, he didn't doubt and like neither would I if I had that experience. But I think like Annette is saying we know ourselves too well to you know there's there's we're we're too like frail and, and weak and like we need like constant reminders and evidences of, of God's presence and and grace and Probably Thomas can do that too. Yeah. Um, 
related to that, really, before Jesus ascended to heaven, why did he tell the disciples to wait? And how is that instructed to you? Do you remember why? What were they waiting for? He gave them the Great Commission, but then he said, hold up. What are they waiting for? They're waiting for the Holy Spirit. That's right. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit. What does that say about the Great Commission and the Holy Spirit? Like, why do they need to wait? It's a it's a God powered thing. Um, so prior to. Uh, well, death and resurrection. Essentially, the disciples and the followers, the followers of Jesus, were doing mission, a, a kind of mission, with him being present. And uh, so, after his death, resurrection, and ascension, they're they're essentially without <clears throat> without divinity, without power. And so, like for them to go out on their own would be them doing it without the power of God. Mm-hmm. And it, it speaks to the we're not possibly designed, called, asked to do mission or the work of God without God Himself. So there's just like oh, like there's a, a requisite of like co-laboring presence of God at all times, kind of thing. Um, yeah, that's really instructive to me as somebody who's kind of like more of like a head knowledge guy to where it's like well I already knew like if I know the stuff you know Jesus has explained the whole Bible to me and he's like told me like what to do why don't I just do it um like what is added and so it's just it's really helpful to me to remember that even the disciples even given their experience yeah, so whether you're a head knowledge guy or an experienced guy or like relational guy, like they had all of that with Jesus. You would think that they they of all people could go without, but even them, Jesus is like, nope, you need to wait. Um, and then what happens at Pentecost to sort of show why why is Pentecost important? And I don't know if we mentioned Pentecost is the coming of the holy spirit that's like the the term for it the day um one one highlight for me about pentecost is um i mean so that i mean the scriptures say that they're gathered in the upper room kind of hiding hiding out Mm -hmm. and kind of like not fearful but like you get the sense reading the scriptures like they're kind of keeping to themselves very isolated and then the the spirit comes upon them and then they, they actually pour out into the streets and they start like declaring Jesus in different languages and, and the townspeople think they're drunk um, and Peter pulls them aside he's like no no hold on hold on like this is not they're not drunk this is actually the fulfillment of scriptures um, basically confirming <clears throat> well testifying the work of the man God Jesus, uh, and I think it, really, it is really cool uh, because it, it then mentions that uh, the hearers from other nations were able to hear about Jesus in their own native tongues, and they didn't have to like, okay, well, normally they're speaking Aramaic, and then like, how do I process this language? It's like not my 
native language, so God, in, in doing his missions to the world, it brings back the story to the Abraham piece of the promise of like blessing the world through that one family. Um, and like this is this is like an outplay of mm-hmm. God blessing every nation in the world now through His Spirit and the Word of His Son. So like God's care for all of creation, all all peoples, um, even like using the Spirit to kind of like spur that on. Yeah, it's really cool. That that is cool. Yeah, I think it's important to tag team off the last question as well. Like. Um, they were together and like a lot of them were asking, what does this mean? Right. And then, um, they're able to almost like speak into and instruct one another in like interpreting what's happening. So like, even though the spirit has fallen on them, like Peter gives them like direction and like, Hey, this is what's happening. Like he's almost like translating, Hey, yeah, this is what's happening now. Here's what we do. Like go and be baptized and like, um, repent and like, like it's almost like this oh, I don't know what's going on and it's like no you know what's going on like mm-hmm. here's what's going on like and they almost sync up on the same page so it's just like again back to that whole importance of like being together um, I couldn't imagine like what that would be like if like the spirit fell on you kind of like Paul like on the road or Saul on the road like to Damascus like you know the uh, spirit like he's, he has this like episode or whatever and he's like I don't know what this means and so he has to like go to someone to like have that mm-hmm. almost like translate like what do i do next and so yeah yeah that's really good so where it's like the spirit doesn't replace the word you know um he the word like and the spirit work together you know just as jesus and the spirit you know work together father son and spirit do but yeah i appreciate yeah both of your thoughts yeah i'd never I never sort of connected them leaving the upper room and going outside to the spirit, like that, that being, it just sort of felt like it was part of the narrative, you know, but to, to realize that the spirit moves people out, they didn't receive the spirit and stay inside and say, this is cool. Like a big, like a LSD trip or something, you know, but it like moved them out. Um, and then that they, again, unlike an LSD trip, like it was interpreted by the scriptures. Like there, there was a reason behind the madness, um, of the Holy spirit. I think one of the things that's hard in modern times is, is thinking about what converts like making converts. And so Jesus instructed his disciples to go and make disciples of every nation. Um, are the disciples right to convince others to leave their religious traditions to follow Jesus? And is it still right? How do you feel about it? Well, maybe splitting hairs, but I think the word convince is maybe not in in the Great Commission. Mm. They're to teach and to baptize. and, And so I think that, like, I can't convince anybody of anything yeah. <laughs> but only God can open the eyes of people but I can teach and I can well I I'm, have never baptized anyone but you know <laughs> those are all things that I can like our bodies can physically do but I can't open anybody's eyes yeah yeah so you're you're bearing witness does that does that make 
So obviously it makes it sound easier um, in terms of like, oh, I, I can't convince anybody. Does it also feel less offensive to our modern ears to, to when I change it to bear witness as opposed to convert? Does that help people? Yeah, I think that helps um, a little bit. I think it's recently I've been doing some a lot of thinking on this and something that has also really helped has been to think about or like helped me to understand some people's offense or some people's like frustration with this has been to like kind of as I've, as I've understood more like the consequence that people have felt for not being convinced like the way that people have felt historically for not being convinced or for not turning from their religious traditions. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm coming to understand that I think a lot of people for a very long time have felt like there were very serious, like social immediate, sometimes even economic consequences for not turning. Um, or like not being, you know, not being convinced and, um, and which is a little bit ironic because what we believe from the scriptures is, is that there will be like consequence enough without us adding anything mm-hmm. um that like the lord himself will judge and then that will be like a plan consequence enough that we don't need to add anything to that um and so that's actually been really helpful for me it, it's like it's been helpful for me to say like ah like i can i can share or teach or even like encourage people to like discover or like explore this man jesus but what will make them feel maybe like less offended is if I'm clear, like that there will not be any any consequence from me if they don't. Um, and it seems like that's really been been a lot. And it also doesn't like require that I like not speak truthfully. Like I, mm-hmm. if they ask, you know, like that doesn't mean there won't be any consequence. But that's very different from like I won't give you my business. I won't, yeah. you know, I'll sabotage your political endeavors. I'll sabotage your job. Like we'll. I don't know all of these other things. So that's been really, that's been really helpful to like, and if you don't, then dot, 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 like exploring that part of it, I think has been helpful for me. Yeah. And in the New Testament, the actual opposite was the case to, to convert to Christianity. That's when you suffered the consequence, you know, like, um, it would, the consequence came from conversion. The persecution came from conversion in many parts of the world. That's the case. Um, you know, if you live in a Muslim country, certain Muslim countries like outlaw conversion from Islam to another religion. And so to do so brings upon, yeah. And, and, and seeing that that's the way of the world and, um, and the, to, to think that Christians would sort of take up that strategy is really wrong and offensive. We don't have uh, time for the question, but sort of the next one is sort of like, what should a church be like? And so that, you know, Emily's comments really touch on that. Like there, we have lots, we have in here an example of what a church should be like. And then we have lots of examples throughout history of what churches should not be like. Um, and the way they go about conversion is one of those ways. All right. Act five, scene three, final scene. Jesus promised to come back one day saying, when I return again, Everyone will know I am here. It'll be like a huge flash of lightning that fills the sky. When Jesus returns, he will restore the earth, setting it free from its curse. 
He will destroy all evil, sin, and rebellion. There will be no more sin and sickness, pain, or death. Everyone who followed Jesus will be resurrected and restored just like he was, and these people will live forever because sin and death will be no more. God showed one of Jesus' disciples named John what this would be like in a dream. And John wrote down all that God showed him. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, he wrote, for the old heaven and the old earth were gone and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city coming down from God out of heaven. It looked like a bride beautifully dressed and ready for her husband. And I saw a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the throne of Jesus. It flowed down the center of the main street in the holy city. And on each side of the river grew uh, a tree, and both were trees of life. On them was enough fruit to heal all the nations of the world. No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of Jesus will be there, and his followers will be there worshiping him. They will see his face, and they will be known and marked as his own. There will be no nighttime there, no need for lamps or sun, for God himself will shine on them, and together they will rule over everything forever and ever. John continued, Then I heard a loud shout from the throne, saying, Look, God's home is again among the humans. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sadness or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. John also saw Jesus cast Satan and his fallen angels out of the earth and into a lake of fire. No longer could he harm God's people or God's place. And Jesus, sitting on the throne, said, Watch, I am making everything new. Everything has happened as I planned. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. Everyone who overcomes the world, those who believe in me and allow me to conquer sin and selfishness in them, they will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But everyone who chose to rebel, aligning themselves with Satan, refusing God's gracious sacrifice, was sent away from God's good presence into the lake of fire to be with Satan, whom they had chosen. God never wanted anyone he created to choose this path, but some did anyway. The last thing Jesus said to John and the churches was, Watch as you wait for me, because I am coming back soon. Let's close in prayer. And then I'm going to speak a little bit so it's not completely close. <laughs> Dear Father, we are thankful for this story. We're thankful for all of it, um, for the parts that we like and sound like such good news, the parts that are hard, that are challenging. Uh, Father, thank you for revealing yourself to humans. Uh, for having them write scripture down and then having uh, the church pass scripture down over the centuries. Father, we're thankful for uh, Christians that we have known that have gone before us in this city and in our lives and over the centuries um, who have shared this story. We're thankful for the first time that we heard it and we're thankful for this time. Would you open our eyes to receive um, you, to receive your spirit, um, to receive Jesus uh, this morning as we reflect on the story. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
Uh, just a short word as we finish the story. Uh, thanks so much for sticking with me these five weeks. It is just an amazing story. It's, it's so good to hear it every year. Uh, these five weeks, though, barely do it justice. If you dig into the Bible itself, it's so brilliant. It's moving and challenging and wise, emotional. It's alive. As I finish the story, though, I'm aware that it ends with some tension. Uh, you feel different at the end of this story than you do after finishing a good novel or a good movie, which sort of just like closes and then you then you move on with your day. And there's a reason for that, because unlike most stories, this story makes a claim on you. A few stories invite or ask or instruct me to rethink my whole world. A few stories ask me to commit my entire life to its author and call him Lord. Uh, a f- few stories promise to hold me accountable for my response to its message. The story of God puts you on the spot. Uh, even if you've been a Christian for a long time, even if you've been at Citizens for a long time and heard this story every year for the last five years, to hear it again is to be called to respond, to be put on the spot. It's Jesus' very first sermon all over again. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Um, The Bible ends with the risen Jesus basically saying the same thing, that same original message. In Revelation 22, 7, it says, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And I just want to end with this question. What does it look like? How is God calling you to keep the words of the prophecy of this book? Because that is where blessing is is to keep the words. What does it mean for you to keep the words of the prophecy of the book? There is no more important question because Jesus is coming soon. Again, in verse 12, he says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And of course, this really ups the ante to where, what have I done? He's going to He's going to repay me for what I've done. That's an intimidating question. And the psalmist rightly says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? Man, if I'm truly repaid for the things that I've done, like I I won't be able to stand under it. Um, No one could. And that is why there is this final turn, graciously, mercifully, this final turn at the end of Revelation, which is the very end of the Bible, the last words of the Bible. Um, You have Jesus here saying, I am coming soon in verse 7 and verse 12 with a little bit of intimidation and weight to it. But then in verse 17, you have the spirit and the bride, the spirit and the church they say come. So Jesus says, I will come. And now the spirit and the bride say come and let the one who hears say come and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And the basic idea here is if you wait for Jesus to come to you in his second coming, he will come in judgment and you will not be able to stand under his holy scrutiny. I won't be able to stand. But if realizing my sin, I go to him first, I I respond to the call, to the invitation of the spirit to come, then he will respond with grace and forgiveness. And this is Jesus's message. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn now. Come now. Don't wait. Paul says, 
Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. The window of opportunity will close, but for now there is an open invitation for you to come. In need, thirsty, sick, humble, contrite. And Jesus promises to graciously and mercifully respond to your need with forgiveness and healing and blessing, to clothe you with his righteousness, to adopt you into his family, to seal you with the Holy Spirit, to set aside an an imperishable inheritance for you in heaven, to never leave you nor forsake you, to bring you home. It's good news if only you'll come. But it has to be responded to. Um, You know, all of us, because of our crazy politics, have gotten like all kinds of civics lessons and like constitutional lessons and like separation of powers lessons and all these things over the last uh, years and then the past couple of months in particular where we're just like asking ourselves like, is that legal? Can he do that? What's the 25th Amendment? When can we use that? Like we have all these things and then there's all these like um, news articles that sort of go into the details. And one of the lessons that Americans relearn every four years is about the limits and details of the president's uh, pardon power. So every four years we sort of like, what is this again? Like, why is this true? Can he pardon his family members? Can he pardon himself? Can he pardon himself for future crimes? Like these were all these little uh, questions that you had to ask. And in my recent reading on presidential pardons, I found it interesting that presidential pardons have to be accepted to be effective. You you have to accept them. A president cannot unilaterally pardon somebody um, who doesn't want to be pardoned. And that's because, according to the Supreme Court, there was a case, uh, you know, 60, 80 years ago, to accept a pardon implies a confession of guilt. And so it's sort of, it, it doesn't, it's not technically, but it sort of implies that. And so you, don't, you can't make someone accept a pardon. And there are some who on principle might refuse to accept guilt and for that reason not want to be pardoned and say, I don't want that. Um, and it's, it's so interesting to look at like how we navigate justice and to think about how it speaks to our cosmic desire for justice. The gospel offers every human being a complete pardon. Um, for sins past, present, and future. There is forgiveness of sins available in Jesus. But to receive the pardon, you have to accept it. Like you have to be able to own your own guilt. Um, I also learned that there have been cases where a pardon has been, was not accepted in time and the president actually like retracted it. And the thing is like, once it's accepted, it can't be overdone. So if you're forgiven by a pardon, like it's forever like even that president can't pull it back. But if you don't accept it in time, it can be retracted. And that is the same way here with God's pardon. When Christ comes again, the window of opportunity will be closed. And so now is the time. Now is the opportunity to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so we're challenged by this story. We're impressed and amazed at the grace of God, at the persistence of God to save his people From the very beginning, Adam and Eve, he worked so hard. He labored and and weaved this wild story to send his only son to live perfectly and to die in our place, to be raised by the power of the Spirit, defeating death, so that we might be raised if we join ourselves to him, if we are joined to him by faith. The salvation is 
immense and rich and beautiful and but then it leaves it it leaves us with this question of like will you come like will you practice the words of this book will you believe will you have faith will you heed its demand on you and so the closing question is will you keep the word of the prophecy of this book what does that look like for you what is god inviting you to do where uh you will be blessed because you keep these words Let's pray, and then we'll be done. Dear Father, we are, again, thankful for this story and ask for mercy and grace and faith to keep the words of the prophecy of this book, um, that we would not avoid you, that we would not avoid our guilt and our neediness, our sickness, our um, our brokenness, but we would come to you believing your promise that all who come will be given access to the water of life, will be given uh, new clothes of righteousness, will be adopted into your family, will be um, given grace and mercy and power, will be protected. Um, But all of that requires that we come uh, to you. And so I pray for that for the people here. Um, on this call, Father, that we would be people who would come to you, that we would consistently come again and again. Father, I pray that we would be people who would keep the words of the prophecy of this book as Jesus instructs us at the end of the Bible, and that we would be people who would go and invite others. Uh, It's not just the spirit that's the spirit and the bride say come and we are that bride and so we i pray that we would go into the world and and offer that invitation as well and share this story we pray all these things in christ's name amen